0: You're listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Steve Priestman is a veteran stage manager who managed shows for over 35 years at the Omaha Community Playhouse, while also finding time to stage manage shows at the Norton Theatre. He managed two international appearances of Playhouse shows during his tenure. In 1987, the show 1940's Radio Hour went to Austria, and in 1989 the show Quilters went to the Soviet Union. Steve recently finished managing Sweat and the Bridges of Madison County at the Playhouse. For the past six seasons, Steve has assisted backstage with the Symphony Christmas Celebration, five of which as assistant stage manager. Days find Steve spending his time as manager of printing and publication services for Omaha Public Schools. Steve Priestman? Welcome to the Green Room.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you so much. I have to say, you... And your family—you've got to be like the first family of the Playhouse, right? Now well, <laughs> I mean, there, were, there were a like couple
1: it. families. Yeah, okay. you know, we're definitely one of them. The others moved on. <laughs>
0: okay, okay, but I always associate you and Brian and Jenny—you know—I associate all of you with with the Playhouse and Marion and Marion. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, all of you. But before we get into all of that, you are the stage manager. Uh, for the omaha community playhouse and you have been there for over 35 years that
1: is correct i sometimes forget how to count it all but that sounds right
0: (laughs) so we're gonna go back in time to before your days at the playhouse we'll go back to when you were a wee tot are you from Omaha originally? Yes,
1: grew up in Omaha. Lived here in the metro area my entire life.
0: What part of Omaha did you grow up in?
1: Near the Playhouse, as it happens. Okay. Sixty eighth and if Coming had were to cut through, sixty eighth and Coming. Okay. So it's just west of Western Hills Elementary and slightly north and east of Lewis and Clark Middle School and three blocks from the Playhouse.
0: Okay. Now, are are those the schools that you attended? Actually, yes. Uh,
1: Western Hills, Lewis & Clark, and Central.
0: And Central. When did your love of theater begin?
1: We were taking the children, Jenny and Brian, as they were little, to shows that we felt were appropriate, or to the symphony. And Marion was a vocal music major in college, and she sang chorally. And it just became natural, you know, wanted to expose the kids. And uh, that was probably when Jenny was six, Brian five. You know, we had been doing it probably for about a year, year and a half at that point.
0: Did you do any theater when you were in high school or anything? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. But I'm assuming like Marion was in like choirs and things like Mm -hmm. that. Yes, And then, where did you go to college?
1: Uh, UNO, and it was UNO at that time. Uh, I hung around my sister, who was also attending. She was seven years older. At that time, it was Omaha University.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yep, yep. And what is your degree in?
1: Actually, I do not have a degree. I got married and uh, started working full-time, joined the family business. My dad needed some assistance. It was a print shop, and I'm a printer by trade.
0: Oh, okay. And there's somebody going up the street. My goodness, that is a loud car (laughs) going up the street, right in the middle. So your dad or your family was in the printing business? Yes, Where was their uh, printing business located?
1: We started when I was little on 15th between Howard and Harney. It is now the part of the Orpheum when they expanded from the original just movie theater and did their major expansion. Then we moved down to the W.O.W. building, which doesn't exist anymore, at uh, 14th and Farnham. And then moved to the Aquila Court building, okay. which is sort of catty-corner to the Orpheum, 16th and Howard.
0: Yeah, which is
1: right by where the symphony is. Right. In fact, late well after I had closed that business, the symphony moved in there, and they were there for several years.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> when did you transfer from being an audience member to becoming part of the theater scene?
1: Probably 1984, I believe it was. We had, you know, as I said, taken the kids to see shows, Mm -hmm. and I remember one year, Brian, who was pretty little then, you know, I wanted, we were at Christmas Carol, and I want to do that, I want to do that someday. And this was, you know, maybe a year later, He reminded us that, you know, don't forget, I want to do Christmas Carol. That was back in the era when audition notices were always in the Sunday World Herald. And uh, Marion happened to, you know, we still had the paper around and looked. And uh, auditions happened to be that night. (laughs) So, you know, we took him. He was cast as one of the children in the children's ensemble of Christmas Carol. So either, you know, I drove or Marion drove him, you know, every night. And then the following year, uh, Marion said, this is ridiculous. I want to do it, too. I'm driving all the time. And she had not done anything since college. She auditioned. She was cast as one of the adults. And then later in the year, Jenny started saying, well, I want to do it, too. And it happened to be the following year. Brian, Jenny, and Marion all went on Nebraska Theater Caravan, one of the Christmas Carol tours.
0: Which one? That
1: was the East Coast.
0: The East Coast. And that was back when they were doing three tours. That is correct. (laughs) And the East Coast tour, that was the one, my understanding, uh, that was the most difficult? Because it had so many stops?
1: Yes. I mean, I don't know if difficult is quite right. But there were a lot of one night, you know, so you're really performing you you know, you may be going to the hotel to sleep or you may be driving and sleeping on the bus. And that was in the era when, you know, they did not have as nice of facilities in buses. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're sleeping, you're sleeping in your seat, you know, and it's a lot nicer now. Tech staff has better sleeping arrangements, <laughs> too. But I mean, it, it was fun and you had a lot of one night stands. That would have been Brian's third year in Christmas Carol, and actually, he was part of the children's ensemble. The first two, he was Tiny Tim on that tour. Okay, and uh, Jenny was would have been Belinda Cratchit, and Marion was one of the adult you know ensemble, and the parents in that era too. Most of the times, the parents were performers as well. Nowadays, they try to have someone with actual educational background, almost a tutor, mm-hmm. to go along with the kids. Part of that is, you know, some schools have a little bit of reluctance to let a kid out for that long. Sure. And, you know, so it, it's tightened up a bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so they, they toured for several years and then came back to main stage and then maybe they toured again. I remember one year when they came back to main stage, they, you know, they changed from Francis and Belinda to uh, Peter and Martha, the oldest of the <laughs> Cratchits. It was probably not appropriate. You know, they, they probably weren't really right for that. But that's what, you know, mm-hmm. at that time that would have been uh, Charles Jones was the director. And that's, you know, what he did. And I think After that second year, when it was Marion and Brian in the show, I said, this is ridiculous. I want to get involved, (laughs) too. And later that same season, uh, Playhouse was doing Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And I volunteered. I was part of the crew for that show. Charles Jones was in that show in addition to directing. And so that was my first real chance to get to know him and, you know, staff around the playhouse and (laughs) ever since.
0: So how many shows do you remember? How many shows you actually worked backstage before you actually started cutting Uh, your teeth as a stage manager?
1: Probably four. I was assistant stage manager for Barnum And I forget, there was one other show. And I was assistant stage manager for Christmas Carol. The first year, I was just part of the floor crew on Carol. The second year, I was assistant stage manager. And a fellow named John Harrison had been the stage manager for many, many years. And John actually moved him out of Omaha. And I took over Christmas Carol at that point. And I don't know, that was probably... (laughs) Eighty I'm not positive about that.
0: (laughs) Do you... So have you been like the only stage manager, like lead stage manager, I guess would be the best way of saying it, for A Christmas Carol since that time?
1: I continued that for 24, 25 years, something like that, when our grandchildren were born and then growing past just being babies, mm-hmm. decided, both Marion and I decided we wanted more time, family time. Mm-hmm. When our kids were little and in it, we were all in it. So sure. family time was also Christmas Carol. Sure. With, you know, two-year-old, three-year-old, that's not going to happen. Right. So that's when I stopped doing Carol. And uh, Jeannie Shelton took over okay. managing Christmas Carol after I stopped. and But I continued doing other shows mm-hmm. for or three more years. Mm-hmm. Then actually, uh, the year that Carl and Susie retired, I decided it's time for Me Too. I retired. That lasted two years.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and then I came back.
0: Yeah. What is it about being a stage manager? What, what draws you to that role in particular, as opposed to any other technical aspect of theater?
1: I enjoy the details. I am a I'm a detail person. I'm, I think, pretty well organized. And to be a successful stage manager, you need all of that. You're juggling so many things. And then when you're having success, when you're hearing the audience reaction, you don't hear an audience react on a movie. Mm-hmm. Movie might be wonderful, but... The performers, there are no performers there're listening mm-hmm. and that's what I love about live theater. You do hear the reaction and you f- you do feel that emotion mm-hmm. from the audience. Mm-hmm. And so I, I enjoy having the responsibility and then when when you're successful, that's that's just heaven mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. during the time that you were stage manager for A Christmas carol were there any challenges from year to year things that you either looked forward to with uh, with the production or things that you were like oh this is this is always the hairy part of the show. This is the part of the show that I always, I can't wait till we get through that and I can breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah,
1: and I think on all shows you have some of that.
0: Yes, uh, I would agree, I would uh, agree. But
1: with Christmas Carol in particular, this was, again, not the current staging, but where Dick Boyd, who was Scrooge, flew to the top of the bed in, you know, the top of this second act. Mm-hmm. That is difficult. Yes. Is scary you you don't breathe as that's happening because i mean god forbid if something were to go wrong right that and i think when the playhouse every year they have one performance where it's a shadowed performance there are people signing arts and there may be a person signing the character of Scrooge and another person, you know, maybe Fred. So you have more people on stage Mm -hmm. and they have not been through weeks of rehearsal with you. They've been watching, you know, usually several shows from the wings or from the auditorium But there are some moments, for example, if you have a trap door open for the final Cratchit scene because the tombstone is coming up. So I'm I'm giving away some of the secrets now.
0: Spoiler alert.
1: But, uh, (laughs) you know, at one point, you know, the tombstone comes up. But before it comes up, there's a hole on stage. Right. Now, the cast knows. I mean, it's totally safe. Right. And we have talked to the interpreters. They know. But... They've only seen it a couple times. Right. That is, oh my god, I you know, you're not breathing. Yes. And, you know, they're, sure. they're such a great group of people. Mm-hmm. We never had a problem, right. but we always were holding our breath.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. What other shows have you done at the Playhouse that you would say were highlights of your 35 year career as a stage manager. That
1: I wouldn't I was thinking that you might ask something like that and that's that's very difficult because I think when you manage for that long you have some favorites. Mm-hmm. You have some that are outstanding and you have some that maybe are less than outstanding. Oh sure and I won't ask you about <laughs> any
0: of those. But you know
1: you you have that whole range. Sure. I think Secret Garden was You know, I sort of gauge how I'm reacting when I'm seeing the show and maybe during the climax of the show. And if I'm trying to call cues and I have tears Mm. because of the nature of the show, Mm -hmm. that's a tough one and it's a pretty good show when that happens. And that definitely has happened. Mm. I think of Secret Garden. I think of uh, Quilters, the Mm. year... The Playhouse did Quilters many years ago, and that was the show that Carolyn Rutherford, who was a staff member at the time, directed, and we took that show to the Soviet, at that time, the Soviet Union.
0: I'll interrupt you for one moment. I was just talking about Quilters the other day with Kim Jupinville, of all people. We were talking, uh, and Kim was, mm-hmm. was in one of the productions of Quilters. But it was one of those shows that I said, "Quilters is a show that it doesn't matter how many times it's it's done. If it's if it's done, and I'm like within the general area, I will I will go see it. I saw that production that the production because Susie Collins was in that. Yes, and I couldn't tell you who else was in that show, but what I remember is Susie Collins doing Sunbonnet Sue, and. It was probably like the most hilarious thing that I had ever seen in my life, and a friend of mine and I went and saw it because we were just getting ready to start our freshman year down at UNL, or we were in the middle of our freshman year, I guess I should say, and Nebraska Rep was going to do it that following following spring, and so we wanted to see it because we wanted to know what it was all about. But that is a that is a wonderful, wonderful show. Oh, so. Definitely. How did you guys end up taking it overseas? Well,
1: the playhouse and i I don't probably don't have the name exact, but it was an international theater festival that a small theater company from Moscow came to Omaha. They performed the playhouse using the Nebraska Theater Caravan plus some community actors, was performing a little bit of a different updated version of Julius Caesar, and that was on the, uh, the main stage. And as part of that festival, then round number two was in Russia. And so we went, and that was a challenge. Uh, we This was... Almost the beginning of of the opening of Russia, mm-hmm. you know, to outsiders. Prior to that, any tour group, any sort of exchange, was very tightly controlled and aided by the Soviet government. This was the so, late
0: '80s, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, 80, 89. Yep,
1: eighty nine. And so I mean, they had they had tools. I mean, it was in the the government felt it was a good thing to do, so they provided tools. There were no tools. This was a independent, a very small theater in Moscow was putting it on, and the things that we all would take, just you know, take for granted that okay, when we're going to do a you know do a performance, and I mean, is there a, a broom? Can we clean the stage? No, there's no broom in the building. I mean, so many things like that. We also had a journalist with us, a World Herald columnist, and uh, he was a former TV entertainment reporter. Peter Citrin was his mm-hmm. name. Uh, Peter was with us, and that we felt, and Omaha is right next to Offutt Air Force Base, Mm -hmm. the Strategic Air Command. Right. You can imagine, again, with the Cold War. Exactly. Because it still was the Cold War at that time. The suspicion, we did know we had, you know, a, a KGB handler that was assigned to us. And, you know, we were supposed to perform in Moscow, and we did, and, you know, One of the issues with quilters is talking about uh, a twister, tornado. Well, okay, they don't, at least in most of the Soviet Union, that is not a weather phenomenon that they have. Right. So we, we had to come up with an occasional word that would help the audience understand what was happening. And we did that. And then we had a long train ride in, I think it was more of southern Russia, we were supposed to go to an area and we were performing there. And we get off, uh, no, actually that was a plane ride, and the plane lands and we just have to wait at the airport and we know something is up. We don't really know what is happening. We're at the airport and ultimately we found out the permission for us to perform there was withdrawn by the government. So, but they have these foreigners that are there that they don't want to offend. They want to try to be nice to us. So, we're walking to a hotel. Generally, the hotels that foreigners go to are different than the hotels that the Soviet citizens go to. There was no foreigner type of hotel there. So, we walked, you know, and went to a hotel. We go into the lobby, and we see all the people that had been removed from their rooms to give us rooms. Wow. You can imagine how uncomfortable it was. Yes. And so, you know, we're in rooms, and then at a particular, maybe, at, I don't know, six o'clock in the morning, the speakers that are on the wall start up, you know, with uh, some military music. And again, these are, this is designed for the Soviet citizenry. And, you know, if we were in a foreigner hotel, we probably never would have seen any of that. right? And then, and so we have to then travel, and we went to... I guess, and now it's St. Petersburg, you know, uh, was, I think it was Leningrad then. But, you know, and we, we did perform. Uh, one of the members of our company who was a Playhouse costumer at the time, spoke Russian. Oh. And he did not, he purposely did not let people
0: Know, know that. So that he sure. could
1: hear things. Sure. And, and let it,
0: everybody know. He was like the mole. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. And we, you know, and there was a fair amount of illness sure. just because, you know, we all had been taught, you know, hey, you don't drink the water. You know, you do this, you do that, you do this, everything. But you just, you're there for several weeks.
0: You can't avoid it. Sure. How many performances in total did you do? I think just
1: three or four. It was a small number.
0: Mm-hmm. Was it well received? Yes. I, re-
1: I remember particularly in one city. I mean, the audiences, they didn't really understand a lot. Sure. But it's, it's pleasing music. Mm-hmm. There's dance. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you may not know a thing, understand a thing about the story, but it still can be
0: entertaining. <laughs> yes. Yes. What time of year was it? Uh, that would have been April, I believe. Okay. April, May so it was fairly pleasant mm-hmm. yes. over there
1: yes and i do remember and we're a bunch of people who have a varied political beliefs from conservative to liberal i i think everyone would have considered themselves patriotic but maybe not you know flag waving you know sure. you know everywhere you go we're on a plane and we the pilot announces that we have left Soviet airspace. The reaction was incredible. Then, you know, we, we flew from Soviet Union to London, and I think we had a day and a half there or something like that. And then we ended up flying back, and we landed, you know, in— I think it was in Minneapolis. <laughs> when the announcement—when we landed back on U.S. soil, I think everyone was so excited— Mixed feelings about the trip, mm-hmm. I think over time, a lot of people have a lot m- more fond memories of it mm-hmm. initially i mean we had a there were a lot of people that were ill because of it giardia, so you mm-hmm. know gastro issues mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I know of some people that you know, one adult male lost like forty pounds in just that few weeks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, mm, I need think, to go to Russia. <laughs> I think almost everybody was sick. I remember
0: yeah.
1: Jenny, I mean Jenny and Brian were along. They were the kids. Mm-hmm. They were not performing, but we felt this is an incredible opportunity. Sure. So and Marion was assisting with props and costumes. And so we we went as a family. I think Jenny may have been one of the few people that wasn't sick, but she also Virtually didn't eat. Mm. You know, some people had packed peanut butter and other things, and uh, she existed on that sort of food.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, even with um, mixed feelings about the country that you're in, that still was like, it had to have been an incredible experience. I know when I was in college. I wasn't involved with this, but they they took a production of Streetcar Named Desire over to Japan, mm. and uh, my roommate had the opportunity to go. And I just remember them talking. I mean, that was like everybody was like, ah, "I want to be in that show. I want to yep. be in that show <laughs> to go." You know, to go over there just for the experience of performing in another country. Oh, I know. So,
1: and then I was fortunate enough I was a couple years earlier. We took 1940s Radio Hour, which was a musical, mm-hmm. uh, to Austria. And how did that come and about? That, I believe that was also an exchange. Again, Charles Jones was intimately involved in coordinating all of this. At that point, he was the artistic director. He had directed 1940s because it was on the season in the, in the uh, Howard Drew Theater at the time. And so we started hearing rumors that we may be able to take this show to austria as a part of a uh, international theater festival there and this continued talk continued and then so ultimately we were told yes this is a possibility so start looking at calendars and you know we still have a lot of details to work out and that was the same year in 1987 where suddenly there were reports of the, Aust- I I don't remember the office. It may have been the president uh, of Austria, but there were reports uh, of him, his involvement during World War II with the Nazis. Mm. And suddenly, you know, things became a little bit tense. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. ultimately that was all, you know, forgotten. And we went, we had a, Ball. The show was very warmly received. We did have two, two African Americans, one African American performer and a African American musician that went, and I remember them at the time saying that they heard comments and it was nothing negative, but they were the first time that many of those residents had seen an African-American. Sure. And, you know, again, the kids went along on that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so my whole family has had such incredible experiences because of theater. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So besides the Playhouse, you've done work other places, too. You are, you are doing stuff with the Symphony Christmas Celebration, and you've done that for quite a number of years.
1: Yes, that's right. After when I stopped doing Christmas Carol, then we were doing Le Miserable at the Playhouse. I was managing that. One of the members of the crew works for the Symphony, and her daughter takes violin from a particular instructor, as Tessa, my oldest granddaughter, takes violin. And it was one night during La Miz, the crew member, Jen Kreitz-Couch, had told me, hey, the music just came in, because Jen worked for the symphony. The music came in. The girls are going to be able to do the young violins, because the symphony Christmas celebration is a variety of, you know, there's... A little bit of storyline through part of it, just wonderful symphonic music, dancing. And there's one section, it's called the Young Violins. And this is, they, kids come out of there, I don't know, I'm guessing there's probably 30 or 40, ranging from little ones up to high school seniors, perhaps, and these are all students of uh, Ann Nagoski, who is a member of the Omaha Symphony, but she also teaches violin. This has become very popular with the symphony, and it's just referred to as the Young Violins. So I had you know, told Jen, hey, if you need help, holler. A couple months later, she hollered. <laughs> and so the first year I was assisting backstage, in over my head totally, At that, it was almost the last minute, they needed some help. Uh, With dressing that is not my skill. And so, but I I managed it. But, you know, I was helping with dressing and some props. But then the the following year, I was one of the assistant stage managers. And there are two. That, in the nature of that show, the stage manager is in the booth at the back of the auditorium. And we have an assistant stage manager stage right and one stage left. And so, you know, I started that and have continued it ever since. I also did a couple of shows at the Norton years and years ago, and one show at Grand Old Players, that was, that was a special show because it was, I believe, Charles Jones's last show that he directed. It was uh, Three Penny Opera, mm. and Charles called me, asked, hey, will you come help me on this? And so, you know, I had a ball, and as it happens, Marion was in it and Jenny was in it, but having another chance, because at that point, he had retired from the playoffs, and he had some illness issues that he was facing, and but I just I had a ball working with him again.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are what are some of the duties of a stage manager? What are some of the things that that you do? Because you said that you have to be very detail-oriented. So I'm assuming there is a lot of paperwork that you have to generate. And
1: that That is true. Basically, a sta- starting with the auditions, the stage manager is really just a helper to the director. And that helped maybe just shepherding people from room to room for auditions. You know, different directors have different choices they make, and sometimes the director wants your input about some casting. Sometimes they don't. It could be a director that has no knowledge of a of a certain person. You have a lot of knowledge of that certain person, and sometimes the directors, well, what do you know? What can you tell me? And you know, and if indeed that person is, hey. They're just a doll to work with, you know, hard worker, reliable. I just know you're going to like working with them. You say that. Mm-hmm. If it's the opposite, <laughs> you, you, you may say that. Right. But so that starts during the audition process. And then once rehearsals start, it's everything from literally just keeping track, checking people in, you know, who's called to rehearsal tonight, writing down, uh, blocking for, you know, okay, at this point. Scrooge enters from, you know, stage left, you know, or whatever the, whatever the show might be. A big, complex show has a lot of blocking. A smaller show would have, with less people has less blocking. And that's where, I mean, there are times... And I fully admit it. I cannot get a hundred percent of it down. It's just impossible because you're not going to tell the director, "Hey, would you please hold while I write all of this down?" Right. You know, that director wants to keep moving. Sure. You know. So you you pick and choose what is the most critical mm-hmm. entrances and exits. You know mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. And then as you get further along and you learn more of what the scenic designer and the director have in mind as far as, for example, scene shifts and at a certain point this, you know, scenery flies out and then something comes in from the stage left and then another piece of scenery flies in. So you're you're noting all of that and then what I've done for many, many years at the Playhouse I would develop just an initial list of the shifts for Playhouse staff. And it's normally it's for Greg Shear, who's the production coordinator. And so it would list all of those moving things that have to happen in the sequence. They have to happen because sometimes the sequence is critical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then that's the, what he uses to develop what's called the shift plot you know, for the show, and that may be, you know, fly person number one has these things and fly two has something else and stage right crew one has this. Greg would make those assignments, but he's working with the list of what has to happen when, and so that, you know, I usually start developing that documentation once the show is blocked. Until the show's black, I don't really know for sure right until you know and there may be times that the director has asked a question you know i'll i will remember back earlier in in Kimberly's days, she had not worked. With as much of the automation that the playhouse uses, mm. when I, you know, as you know, when I'm saying automation, mm-hmm. it could be a scenery piece that's moving on from the stage left side, right, or the, from the stage right, They're, the th- wagons, the wagons, mm-hmm. or from up center. I sure, mean, and Kimberly, she's fully admitted, I have not worked with that that much. I'm relatively new here to the Playhouse, and there are times when she said, okay, well, how will this work? Mm-hmm. And, for example, you really can't start one thing and then start another till the first finishes. Sure. That has since been changed, and we have a lot more flexibility mm-hmm. in the hardware that the Playhouse uses. But, you know, so there can be times when the director asks for your thoughts There. are times and every director i've worked with has been very open to hey i don't think you want to do this and you explain why sure <laughs> you know sure. it's it's a give and take and mm-hmm. i mean cuz we all have the same goal to do the best we can right right you know yeah. and then you know once the show is you know then all blocked and those cues have been determined going back years ago the stage managers at the playhouse basically just did the backstage cueing. In other words, at this point, you know, a cue light goes off, which means take this particular fly out. And another goes off, oh, push this wagon on. But lights and sound, for the most part, were not called by the stage managers. Okay. That's going way back. Probably, I don't know, maybe... Eight, ten years ago, the Playhouse changed and they decided they wanted the stage managers to call all light and sound cues as well.
0: So I'll stop you for a moment. So then was it the responsibility of the person who was running the light board and the person who was... Running the soundboard to follow along in the script and call their own cues? Exactly. And
1: by calling, in reality, they're pressing a button. button. (laughs) But yes, Yes. they were responsible themselves. Now, there, there were always an occasional thing where maybe you needed a light and a sound cue to be simultaneous. Yes. So the stage manager would definitely call those sorts. Sure. But other than that, the volunteers running lights or sound had the script. The script was well noted as to what happens when, Mm -hmm. and they took it on their own. The Playhouse then, as I say, maybe eight, ten years ago, decided they, they wanted more consistency. Sure. So the stage manager started calling all of that. So responsible for... Anything that's happening backstage, which may be turning off a cue light or a a hand signal or verbal, you know, and also over a headset system calling, you know, a light cue 14 go, you know, or sound, light cue 14 and sound cue 22. They're simultaneous. Go, right, you know.
0: And for people who don't know, when you talk about, like, the lights backstage, I'm assuming it's this way at the Playhouse, because I know it's this way down at the Orpheum. When I used to stage manage for the opera, there would be a light that would actually be on the fly rail. And the crew would watch the light, and then the light would go off, and they would know, based off of that, now I go. It,
1: exactly. And we're fortunate, years and years ago, uh, a gentleman named Wenzel Suki built a more sophisticated cue light system for the playhouse. We have red, green, and yellow, mm. which is allows for a three-part cue. Okay. Because at times you have part one has to happen and part two can't happen until one is finished. And then part three might happen perhaps when two is done or just based on the script, maybe, you know, 10 seconds later. Mm-hmm. And so depending on... The needs of that show and that particular cue, you may have a red light, a green light, and a yellow light. Or once in a while, it's more complex, and there's five or six. So then you're just, you know, over radio, you're warning the crew that you know, you know, warning for Q14. These lights are Q14. You know, and this is a double set because. Once the red goes off, and then it may go back on for cue number four, and the you know the green goes off, but it may go back on for cue number five, etc. Right. And that is a lot safer than not having anything for something that may be a four or five part cue. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, that doesn't happen a lot, but it definitely does happen. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I would say most shows on the main stage are complex enough, you know, there are at least a couple shows that, you know, a couple cues that there's several parts. And it may not be that scenery has to move, you know, first thing happens and then the second after the first is done. It could just be in the nature of the show that, okay, at the beginning of this song, a scenery piece flies out. At a certain point, in the middle of the song, something else happens. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that varies based on the show.
0: <laughs> sure, sure, it can get it can get very, very complex. Yeah, it and,
1: can. And I think that's the challenge that I enjoy. I basically, for the most part, I do the more complex straight or comedy shows and musicals, because they are generally more complex. I don't always do the, the simple shows. Mm-hmm. I I just did Sweat, mm-hmm. which was not a complex show, but I wanted to do that. I just fell in love with that script, fell in love with, you know, I had an opportunity to work with Susie Collins, who's mm-hmm. as a guest director for it. And uh, so, you know, I had no... Cue lights. There's the the only thing that was happening backstage were props people doing things between each scene transition. Right. But I'm calling light cues, sound cues, and that show also had video. Yes. We, the, the TV that was on. Yep. Uh, I was controlling the TV.
0: Okay. Okay. When you do a show on the main stage, well, and and again. It it probably depends on the show. So on main stage, you're in the wings, so you can turn your head to the side and look and actually get a nice sideways view of everything that's going on. But I presume you also have... Uh, view from a TV front of house so that you see what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. And then when you're in the when you're in the Black Box Theater, when you're in the Howard Drew, you're backstage and you're just looking at stuff from a TV. You normally you can't see what's going on. E- exactly. On stage, if the lights go out, you no longer have a view of the stage because a regular camera can't see in the dark. Yeah.
1: That is correct. So
0: how has the Playhouse <laughs> alleviated that?
1: Uh, they've added a second camera that is an infrared system. So it can see in the dark. And so there's two signals coming from up in, the B, up in the follow spot area. The signal from the main camera goes to a monitor. And the signal from the infrared camera goes to a second monitor. So the stage manager has two monitors you know to be able to look at plus then obviously you know looking at the stage
0: you know right. when you can right and do you have an infrared camera as well in the drew or not
1: yes and and in the drew there's only a single camera okay uh, but it is infrared okay and in fact that was a bit of a concern uh with sweat that until you know we verified because sweat had many things happening as part of a transition with minimal light. Jim Mothus had enough lights for safety, for actors to get off stage, you know, and for crew to be able to do what they needed to do. But we're not trying to light it up for the audience. Right. Whereas I, as a stage manager, had to be able to see to know when they're done.
0: Sure. So you would know when to bring the lights e- exactly. back up. So you weren't catching anybody in the light as they were going Ex- on or off. Exactly. didn't look like little cockroaches scurrying yes. off.
1: And so it, the system in the Drew is just a single camera. It's infrared, but Mm -hmm. it it works beautifully.
0: Now, you also had to run. You were the one who ran the video for Sweat. Is that correct? Correct. Was that on the same monitor as the infrared camera? No,
1: that was actually just running on a Macintosh computer. Oh, okay. That, you know, John Dribalisco could be a lot you know, more descriptive of the process. But it was a very complicated because he's trying to send a signal to an old analog television. The TV had to be appropriate for the period, sure. And so typical digital video signals, it's just a whole different system, right? but he so he was converting from from this to this to this to this, and it eventually it worked. And so I just basically had. Uh, a, com- a Mac computer also at my disposal, and they were just cues. I would hit the space bar, and the queue starts. And when that cue is finished, I'm ready for the next one. Right. And this happened during transitions. Most of the time, they were just basically lettering on the TV the show went back and forth between various times in 2000 and various times in 2008. And we felt that it might be confusing for the audience because you have flashback, and then you're back back and forth, back and forth. And so Susie, working with Jim Othus, who was the designer, decided, hey, we're going to help the audience. And Mm so it's just sort of a title slide. It was only up you know, for, I think, four seconds during the transition. Mm -hmm. But we had one special cue that was actually footage from a uh, Larry King live TV show, but it was one of the presidential debates. Mm-hmm. And so we've got, you know, an actor talk. you know, the video was playing on the TV in the bar and one actor, you know, well, what do you think of this fella? And, you know, and, and so they're responding to actual video, right. you know, and then uh, sl- slowly, ah, we're, we're done with this. And the actor's just pretending to change channels on a remote. Well, the queue just automatically, automatically had, you know, several shows and then it's done. Right, right. But, you know, so there were literally some logistical issues between how far away from that TV can this signal be sent from? It yes. couldn't be from the light board or the soundboard. Not that those people would have had time, but just the nature of the signal, it wouldn't work that far. Right. So it made sense. OK, stage manager is going to do
0: it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, and it's nice because it gets you involved with something a little bit more than just just calling a cue. Definitely. <laughs> you have you ever as a stage manager had to go off headset to like help like move a set or move a set piece or something like that?
1: A couple times. I mean, it's r- rare. They I might go off headset to try to deal with a problem sure. wouldn't necessarily be doing a cue, mm-hmm. but okay. Well, why are they having trouble over there? You know, right. or maybe there's someone is ill or an injury. Sure, that can't happen as frequently now that stage managers are calling all the lights and sound cues as well. Right, that's that's the drawback, mm-hmm. in my opinion, mm-hmm. to having the stage manager call those. The stage manager is tied to that desk and to the script even more. There may be some things that happen that I might not even see because they're depending on the nature. My eyes may be on that book Mm -hmm. because I have six cues in the next 20 seconds. And I am listening and watching the book. I may not see that somebody you know, I'm just being silly here, but somebody just walked off the set when they shouldn't have, you know, or whatever. Sure. That's the drawback. Mm -hmm. I think this is, it's still a good thing because I think the shows are a lot more consistent technically, Mm -hmm. but there are times when, oh, I
0: wish, boy, I didn't see that. Right, right. Is there a show out there that you haven't stage managed that you would love to stage manage? Yes,
1: and I have already lobbied Kimberly to have this on the season, Come From Away. Oh. I fell in love with that when I saw it at the Mm -hmm. Mm Orphium. It is, in my opinion, not a super difficult technical show. Mm -hmm. I mean, they did it with basically chairs. Right. So it's it's certainly within the realm of possibility to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. I think it is an incredible ensemble show. Mm -hmm. I think it is castable. Because I think directors always have to keep in mind on a show, are there people that can do this? Right. And I think Come From Away is definitely castable. Mm -hmm. And I think just, well, you know, everything I heard, you know, it did beautifully down at the Orpheum. And I think it would do well again. I mean, I've got, you know... CD of that in my wife's car when, when I'm driving, I us- in her car, it's usually on because I just find it just heartwarming music, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. heartwarming story. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. What's your favorite color?
1: Probably blue, but I'm not sure. Red or blue? I like them both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why. I guess red, you think of red Nebraska, but... <laughs> sure,
0: sure. If there was any place else that you could live besides Nebraska... Where would you want to live? At one time I thought
1: about Orlando because I I'm a big Disney lover and I mean I thought enough about it. I mean we started as a family started looking is is that feasible employment wise and everything and you know ultimately it, I decided not to. I also like air conditioning too much, and it's <laughs> awful hot and humid down there.
0: That is true. So
1: it probably is a nice dream, but it wouldn't happen.
0: Sure. Is there anybody from history that you would love to sit down and have lunch with? This is probably not
1: what you're thinking of when you ask the question, when you say history. Okay. But I would love to sit down and talk with Charles Jones again. That man was responsible for the growth of the Playhouse, the expertise of the Playhouse. He's missed. Mm -hmm. There's Charles had a wonderful laugh. He was the epitome of the Southern gentleman. And there are the people that knew him well you know, would imitate his voice. And once in a while that happens and or make somebody said something, which, you know, that, oh, that's Charles. And there aren't enough people at the Playhouse that even know what you're doing anymore. Sure. You know, you people like, you know, Jim boggiswood or John Dibalisco, Greg sure. Shear, But I mean, there are, there aren't a lot of people. There aren't a lot of The volunteers
0: Mm -hmm. that,
1: you know, they they know the name. They may have heard the name. Sure. But
0: that's all. They don't know the contribution. That's right.
1: I mean, they they may see in the lobby there's a sculpture, a bust of Charles. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first year after that was put in place, Christmas Carol, and nobody even thought to put the scarf around it, you know, to make it into a Christmas carol. Right. And a bunch of us sounded off about that. (laughs) It it was rectified immediately. But I would love to see what, talk to Charles to see if he had the ability to see what things are like now. And I'm sure some of it he would be very happy with, and some maybe not so. I mean, that's always the case. Sure. But, you know, things have changed so much. Theater has changed quite a bit mm-hmm. in, you know, the last twenty years or whatever. I'm honestly don't, I don't recall wh- when he died. I I'm don't thinking, I'm thinking it's probably been about fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. But I, I may be wrong on that.
0: It may be, you know, it actually may be a little bit. Well, maybe he just wasn't at the play. I mean, I knew of Charles Jones, but I mean, and I've done theater here for like 25 years and I never I never had a chance to work with him but I knew of him so Mm -hmm. but I yeah obviously I know what a lasting legacy he had on the playhouse and you're right there are times when we'll say the old guard at any theater you know people move on they pass on and sometimes there just aren't people that are around to help continue those, you know, c- continue those legacies. So it's good to have people like you there that can help carry the torch. Well, it's just, as it it's were. special.
1: And I have such fond memories of Charles. I have p- times when I was just, could have killed him, you know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's human nature, sure. you know? And there are many of us still that have, intimate memories of issues, you know, because of some of his illness issues and needing physical help, uh, you know, maybe getting into a chair or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we we have a lot of memories related to that.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I won't go any further about that.
0: (laughs) What was your favorite show that Charles Jones directed?
1: Maybe Barnum. Barnum was an incredible show. The lead happened to be a state senator from Lincoln, David Landis. Uh, David, his wife, were in it. Joanne Cady, who's a longtime choreographer at the Playhouse. Joanne had one of her sons and daughter-in-law in the show. They were, you know, they were professional jugglers. You know, mime. I mean, and the combination of the circus skills that the cast was taught. I will always remember there was one part that an actor is sliding down from on top of the stage left pro. It is probably 12, 15 feet off the ground. I mean, it's not Tremendous. And he was literally hanging on to a a thick rope, so it was perfectly safe, but he was supposed to slide down. And it was tough for him, and he was afraid. And, you know, but he kept trying, kept failing. He just wasn't able to do it until finally the night, this is still in rehearsals, that he's able to do it, and uh, the cast just erupts. Memories like that. Part of the end of the first act, I mean, P.T. Barnum is walking across, he's tightrope walking across a steel cable that is probably five feet in the air. So, I mean, if he falls, he's not going to get hurt. And we had already, we made plans what would happen because we knew he's not going to make it. Every single night, right. just the nature sure. of that. He is. He has a day job. He's like all of the rest of us. He's a volunteer. He doesn't have months to learn how to be a tightrope walker. <laughs> and so, you know, we, the decision was okay. If he f- falls, he will get up. He'll make. A, he'll ad lib something and try it again. Mm. And you know, and he. David made it, I would say, 80% of the time. You know, once in a while, he struggled. Sure. But uh, just the nature of that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a lot of fun. I remember we did, that was in rehearsal in the summer, because that was the opening musical one season. And that was when there was major construction at the Playhouse. So we were able to rehearse in the rehearsal hall, but there was no air conditioning and that's during the summer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can imagine. But Oh, yeah. And I remember at times, you know, if we're just working on juggling skills, we all went out on, you know, everybody went out 69th and Cass on the uh, southwest corner of the, on the yard. And so you, people driving by honking. and <laughs> It was a lot of fun. And you people, see people learning to juggle.
0: Are you a Yankees fan? You're wearing a Yankees shirt. Uh,
1: yeah, a little bit. I mean, I'm a baseball fan. I Actually, this shirt was a gift to be from somebody. <laughs> I also have a Cubs shirt. That, <laughs> and I, people comment, oh, you're a Cubs fan. Oh, you're, you're a Yankees sure. fan.
0: <laughs> no, I just, I'm a fan of shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Priestman, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: You are very welcome. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit ww.thanky5pod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. Thank you, five. Thank you, five. Thank you, five. Thank you, five.
1: That's the talk.